Welcome to the Christian Teaching Podcast. Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. What I want to do today, my purpose is very simple. I want to look at the kind of faith that pleases God. Uh, the kind of faith that is illustrated in Hebrews 11, uh, the kind of faith that is necessary to carry us through in life. One thing I have been learning is that the Christian experience increasingly needs to be based on realities that are rooted in the spiritual realm. If there is not that foundation embedded in our spiritual beings, if there is not that foundation embedded in who God is, there is no chance to be consistent and to be faithful ourselves in this life. The life of the Christian is faced with various trials. There is reproach born for the sake of Christ. There is the trial of not seeing the promises of God fulfilled according to our standards. And yet this chapter of Hebrews 11, uh, it's often called the hall of faith, but it's so much more than that. It's not just noble lives that are there to teach us of what we can learn of how to serve God. It's not simply about serving God, but it is about living in the reality that God provides us. And we're going to see what that means. So in Hebrews chapter 11, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the text and just go through it verse by verse, see what it means, and apply it to today. Before we get there, let's look at a little bit of background. The background of Hebrews is important to understand in terms of this chapter, because it is easy in this chapter to simply look at it as being a a compilation of sorts of various lessons from the Old Testament. However, it serves a very, very particular purpose in the light of the structure of Hebrews. So let's remind ourselves who Hebrews was written to and what its main theme is. The theme of Hebrews is the superiority of the Son of God who possesses a true humanity and exercises an eternal priesthood. So these people who were written to, the Jews, professing Jewish believers, they were tempted to return to Judaism. They were people who were persuaded again by Jewish teaching all of the physical and visible realities expressed in Judaism. They were tempted to go from this invisible reality of Christianity, this heavenly calling, back to what they were attracted to in their earthly calling. And so the author and we don't know who the author is, is writing to the audience to persuade them of the superiority of Christ in heaven, though we cannot see him. And so he is emphasizing that even though you can see Judaism in all of its physical and visible ceremonies, it is not superior to the New Testament revelation that God has given. So what we're going to do, let's just turn to Hebrews chapter 1 before we come to chapter 11. 
In Hebrews chapter 1, we begin with these words, and I'm reading from the NASB, and if you're looking on the PowerPoint, uh, these verses will not be on it, and the verses we quote from on the PowerPoint will be in the ESV, so we're going to be using two different translations here. But in the NASB of Hebrews 1 verse 1, we read these words. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, this is speaking of Christ, the Son of God, and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they." So what we see here is that at the very beginning of this, we don't have a salutation, we don't have an introduction, but we are just simply faced with Christ in all of his glory. And so here we have the beginning of seeing the superior Christ, Christ all excelling. And we find out here that he is truly God. We find out that he possesses the very glory of God himself, and so he cannot be any other than the Son of God, fully divine in his intrinsic nature. That is going to be important to understand. So we begin by seeing that God spoke to us in his Son, and the Son is qualified to reveal God because he is the Son of God himself. So when it says that God spoke in his Son, this son was appointed to be heir of all things, and this son was the one who actually created the world. Then it speaks of the son as being the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power. So here we are introduced to the son of God who took on true human flesh, but he is not inferior in any way to what he was as God in full glory. He did not surrender any of his deity by coming into true human flesh. Rather, as a man, as the Son of God who has taken on flesh, he is the exact representation of God. He is the one who currently, as a man, yet as the divine Son of God, upholds all things by the word of his power. So we're introduced to the Son of God who by his credentials as God and as a man that God exalted, he is superior, and even as a man exercising his office in heaven, he is supreme above all. So the author is going to do a couple things to prove that. And again, this is all just background leading up to chapter 11. He's going to provide us with various contrasts from chapters 1 through 10 to prove that Jesus Christ is superior to everything that these Jewish believers knew in the Old Testament. In fact, he's going to argue for this, that Jesus is the reason the Old Testament was written. Everything in the Old Testament was written to foreshadow and to illustrate and to anticipate the Lord Jesus Christ. So in chapters 1 through 2, the author is going to bring us to Christ in his true humanity. He is going to show that Christ, the Son of God, really became a man, just as human as we are, apart from the sin question. 
He was perfect, but he was truly human. So in chapter 1, we are introduced to this idea that the Lord Jesus, as a man, has the right hand of God. That is, the seat at the right hand of God. That supreme place of authority in the entire of God's creation. So it says in verse number 4 that he became better than the angels in his form and in the authority that he exercised because he has inherited a more excellent name than they. So number one, we see that Christ is better than angels. Christ is better than angels. For a moment he came in form to be inferior to angels. We see that in uh, chapter 2, that for a little while he took upon a form lower than angels. But that was only for a little while. That was for the purpose of redemption. So he took on true humanity. So we see the idea that Christ is better than angels. But when we come to chapter 3 and verse number 1, notice this with me. It says, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So we're introduced to these two roles of Jesus Christ in terms of our faith. Number one, he is the apostle. He is that leader that has a commission of God to serve over the people of God. Not only that, but he is the high priest of our confession. So when we ask ourselves, who is this apostle? What does that even mean? Well, he brings us to Moses in the Old Testament. And Moses was the Old Testament apostle as it were, the one who served God over the people of God, and he did that in the time of the Old Testament. So it says in verse number 5, Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant. But notice what it says in verse number 6, Christ was faithful as a son over God's house. So there we find that Christ is superior, Christ is better than Moses. And that just tells us that even this great gigantic figure that these Jews look to, the giver of the law, Christ is superior to Moses. And so he leads the people of God into a better inheritance than Moses and the law could ever do. But then we come to chapter 4. And we see this idea of rest, and this is more of an aside that the author brings us to. He says, therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. So he he shows this heavenly inheritance of rest, that our rest, our ultimate time when we cease from fighting, we cease from warfare, that is a heavenly rest that is still to come for us. It is a rest that we have yet to enter into. In the Old Testament, that rest was the possession of the land of Canaan. At least there was a partial rest there. And so after Moses died, there was the appointment of Joshua as the leader of God's people. He was sort of the second apostle of Israel, the one who led them into the inheritance. And so he led by conquest the people of God into Canaan. But he says that rest was incomplete. That rest was incomplete because in the Psalms, it speaks of a rest that is still remaining for the people of God. So this was written well after Joshua conquered Canaan, and yet it still speaks of a rest that there is to come. So what we conclude from that then is that Israel received a partial rest in the land of Canaan. 
but what is there for us is a full rest to be brought in by Christ. So Christ here is better than Joshua. And interestingly enough, the word Jesus is really just the Greek form of the name Joshua. So same name, different contrast. So Christ is better than Joshua because he leads us into the fullness of rest. But remember that the author doesn't only call Christ the apostle of our calling, but he calls him the high priest of our calling. And so he's going to develop and take a lot of time and energy to develop this idea that Christ is the superior eternal high priest of God, and in order to bless man, he is in heaven exercising intercession on our behalf. So what the author does then is he introduces this idea of what a priest on earth is to look like. In chapter 5, he says, Every priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin, so that he can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself is also beset with weakness. So here we are introduced with the purpose of the priesthood under Aaron. But what he's going to do in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 and in chapter 7 is he is going to show that even though Christ is a priest who has all of the qualifications of a true high priest in that he is man, in that he experienced suffering, he is a superior high priest than Aaron for this reason. And we find that reason in chapter 7. The reason is that even though Christ is sort of a high priest in the same way Aaron was, he is not a high priest after the same order of Aaron. So he shows us that there was a high priest that existed in the book of Genesis before the tribe of Levi or Aaron himself was ever born. And this was a priest named Melchizedek. We find him in Genesis chapter 14. So Melchizedek in the book of Genesis was never given a genealogy. And so the author of Hebrews uses that to say that this is exactly like the priesthood of Christ. He has no beginning of days nor end of life. He is the eternal son of God. And yet he is a true man who exercises an eternal priesthood. And so just like Melchizedek was a king of righteousness and king of peace, so Christ upholds the true standard of righteousness and offers peace to his people. So Christ is the priest after the order of Melchizedek because it is endless. The order of priesthood under Aaron was one that men would die under because it was based on the law and the law must condemn men to death. So here we find that Christ is better than Aaron because he has an endless priesthood. But then as we come to chapters 8, 9, and 10, we find this idea of a new covenant being brought up. The new covenant is found in Jeremiah 31 and it's also in Ezekiel as well. And he's quoting from Jeremiah 31 here to show that God promised a new covenant for Israel. You remember that at the Lord's Supper, the very first supper that the Lord Jesus instituted for us to follow, he said, this is the blood of the new covenant 
or this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. So he was initiating that new covenant where this was an eternal covenant with the nation of Israel. So he was initiating that through his death. So what the author is saying is that now that Jesus has died, he has initiated this new covenant where the Spirit of God not only dwells with an individual, but in an individual because he has regenerated their hearts, given them a new heart, and God may dwell may dwell in the individual himself. So that's the idea of the new covenant. So he's saying, listen, the new covenant implies that there is an old covenant, the law. But since it's new, it implies that the old one is passing away. It is it is growing old. It is growing out of use. And so he says that the law is passing away. The law has passed away because Christ has come. And so everything associated with the law, namely the sacrifices, are also not essential anymore and in fact dangerous now that Christ has come because Christ fulfilled all of that. So we see in chapter 10 as well as chapters 8 through 9 that Christ is better than Old Testament sacrifices and the law. And so we find in chapter 10 that Christ is that supreme, all-sufficient, once-for-all sacrifice that delivers us from our sins. So let's think about this a little bit more. We have seen that Christ is all-sufficient and all-supreme even over these physical realities that the Jews were holding so dear. So the question remains then, how do we live in light of these invisible realities? If Christ is truly superior, how do we live in light of this? Well, let's think of how he develops the idea in chapter 10 a little bit more because we find a break in the book of Hebrews at about verse number 18. In verse number 19 begins a section where he is going to apply what he has said to these people and he is urging them, live by faith. Live in light of these realities that though you cannot see them are assured of us, assured to us by the word of God. So he's going to lead up to chapter 11 very deliberately. And in verse number 22 of chapter 10, he says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean. That's an allusion to Ezekiel, I would take it from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So he says, we have been regenerated. We have received the benefits of the new covenant. So let us draw near to the heavenly sanctuary, not an earthly sanctuary, but a heavenly sanctuary that Christ brings us into as the high priest. Let us draw near with a full with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So full assurance of faith, that's going to be vital in the application that he brings. So he continues and he talks about the danger of rejecting this and he says that it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God in verse number 31. But the last verse of chapter 10 which is verse number 39, is going to lead us right into chapter 11. It says, but we are not. In other words, he's distinguishing between true believers and merely professing believers. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are those who have faith. We are believers and preserve their souls. So this this idea of those who have faith, that's going to distinguish us from the false 
believers. So that begs the question, then, what exactly is this faith? How does that manifest itself in the life? Where do we go with this? Can it apply to me today? So that's where we come to Hebrews chapter 11. And we begin with verse number 1. He starts by saying, now faith is the assurance, and now I'm going to be looking at the ESV, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 1 through 7. This is going to be significant for a couple of reasons. In verses 1 through 7, we are looking at Gentiles who had faith. Remember that the idea of the gospel is that Gentiles, as well as Jews, are going to receive God's blessings on the basis of faith. That is what the gospel is. And so these first seven verses are going to be an illustration to the Jewish readers that even Gentiles can come to God by the same faith that these Jews purport to come to God. So we're going to look at men like Abel and Enoch, and Noah. They all existed before the law and before Abraham. So let's turn to verse number one then. Let's look at this. Let's dissect it. Let's think about what it means. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So it kind of divides itself right in in the middle there, and it tells us two qualities of faith. This isn't a definition of faith. If we were to define faith, it would be a little bit mysterious because we know how to do it, but it's difficult to define in an objective sense. When we think about faith, we think about trust. We think about believing the testimony of God, and that is chiefly what it is. So, as to faith in action, though, that is the concern of the author here. He says, now faith is is in terms of what it produces. Faith is. It produces something. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So what we have for are two key words, assurance and conviction. Now, in the King James, you will be used to the reading, now faith is the substance of things hoped for and the I forget the last part, but either way, the evidence of things not seen. So here we have the words assurance and conviction. So let's discuss those for a minute. Number one, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And this is going to be key word number two, things that we are hoping for. So we have hope and we have things not seen, things that are invisible. So assurance corresponds to hope, conviction corresponds to what is invisible. Assurance is also translated substance, as I mentioned, and really this is this is the idea. The idea of hope is an expectation. Hope is not simply wishful thinking in the Bible, as we would use the word today. Uh, our kind of hope is very vague and it is very meaningless because we often say, I hope this will happen. Well, in scripture, that's not the case. You remember in the book of Romans that it says God subjected the whole creation to futility in hope. God was hoping for something. It doesn't mean that God was just wishfully thinking that the creation would be restored, but rather he was expecting it. And that's the key. That is the key with biblical hope. Biblical hope is an expectation. So when it says faith is the substance of what is hoped for, it embodies what we expect. So let's think about this. 
Let's think about these two factors of faith. Faith, in one sense, is going to be future. So it's going to emphasize what has not come to pass yet. Faith is in the future. That is what this idea of hope is. Let's think about this. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So we have this expectation that God is going to fulfill his word, even though it is currently future. That is the idea. God is going to fulfill his word in the future. But what faith does is it takes that confident expectation and it turns it into something substantial. That's where the word substance comes in. It turns faith into something that turns into substance in the human life. So even though the world looks at something that is future and says that is yet to come, what faith does in the Christian's life is it says, even though that is yet to come, I am going to live as if it is already true. So I am going to personalize that. I am going to turn that expectation into reality in my life. That is the idea of faith being the substance of what is hoped for. It embodies our hope. And so it takes what is future and it turns it into present reality. You remember that in the book of Romans, uh, I believe it's chapter 13, where it says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand, let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What is it saying there? Well, it's saying that the day of Christ's revelation, the day of Christ's coming, is not present yet. Christ's kingdom has not been manifested. And so we do not see his righteousness visibly. We do not see the daytime visibly. But we do see the dawn because Christ has come once. And so we know that his second coming is nearby. It's not here yet, but it's close. We know it's coming. So what does he say? He says, the day isn't here yet, but Put on the armor of light. In other words, live as if the day was already here. Live as if the light has already come. You be people who live in the light, even though the world around you is still in darkness. That is the idea of faith. I see what is coming, but I'm going to live as if it is already true. It is the substance of what is expected. So it has that future aspect to it, but it incorporates the future into my present reality. It lives in light of the future as if it is so sure that it has already happened. But then we come to this second idea that it is the evidence or it is the conviction of things that are not seen. So now here we have this idea, not simply of what is future, but what is invisible. So when it comes to what is invisible, we're going to have this idea that we do not see it, but it is real. So when it comes to faith, there's two ways to understand this idea of evidence or conviction of things that are not seen. We can take this two ways. We can take it to be objective or we can take it to be subjective. Let me explain what I mean by that. If it is objective, let's think about this for a minute. If it is objective, it means that the world around me looks at my faith and it sees what is unseen through my faith. In other words, faith sees what is unseen as it were. Faith incorporates invisible realities into my visible reality. It acts 
physically, it acts literally in light of what is invisible. So the world actually sees invisible realities through our faith. It sees faith as embodying what they cannot see. So our faith embodies the reality that Christ is the great high priest sitting in heaven on our behalf, and he is blessing us, and so we live in light of that blessing. We could understand it that way. Or we could understand it subjectively, and that would have to do with what we actually are believing. Faith is the conviction of what has not been seen. And so in our own lives, subjectively speaking, we are absolutely convicted, we are absolutely convinced that even though we do not see certain things, those are just as real, if not more real, than the things we see around us. So that's the idea, and both are technically true. Um... In terms of which I lean towards, I'm just going to leave you with both at this point, and you can decide for yourself of whether this is faith demonstrating what is invisible so that people around can see it in my life, or whether it is in my own heart that I am convinced of what is not seen. Either way, from verse number one, this is foundational. Let's get this idea. Faith involves two factors. It involves incorporating what is future into my present life. And it involves incorporating what is invisible into my actual reality. So we're starting to see that faith isn't wishful thinking here. People just often say that phrase, I have faith or I believe. Well, what does that even mean? They don't even know what it means. And so we here have a definition of what faith looks like lived out in the life. It has to do with expectation and confidence. So we're going to see how that plays out. Let's go to verse number two. And in verse number two, we find these words, For by it, the people of old received their commendation or their approval. Let's think of this. People of old, so those would be people in the Old Testament, uh, people who have already lived their lives and people who have proven the faithfulness of God in their lives. But the key idea here is the idea of commendation or the idea of approval. And basically what it's saying, and this will be developed in verse number 6, is that the only way to live before God is by faith. The entire scheme of God's purposes with man is to allow men to live before God in light of God's promises and in light of God's present reality. So we are a people who the world looks at as believing something that is absolutely insane and something that is a lie, something that we cannot feel or touch or taste or smell or hear. And yet there is something so real about it that we live our entire lives according to faith, according to what we know of God's faithfulness, of God's promises, that our lives are lived entirely before him and only for his approval. Faith lives in such a way that we can only live for God's approval. We can't expect to get other people's approval when we are living in light of what is invisible and when we are living in light of what is future. How will we ever expect to gain the approval of people who are all for instant gratification and for people who live in light of the present? Especially in this day and age, this is relevant because with the advent of science and the apparent idea that everything can be explained by natural means, we will be absurdities in a sense. We will be people who will be mocked and scorned for living 
by faith. And yet this is the only way that we have commendation from God. And this is the only way that we will have meaningful progress in the Christian life. So by it, the people of old received their commendation. And here we just have an encouragement. People in the past have proven that faith is the only possible means to live life and to please God. And you see that in chapter 12 and verse 1, wherefore having a great cloud of witnesses, let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. So there's this idea that people have proven this. It's not just an idea of this vague philosophy that we are called to believe blindly. No, we're not believing it blindly at all. We're believing it because people have proven this in the past. So we are encouraged at the very outset not only to see faith for what it is, but to realize that people have walked the path before us and they have proven it to be the safest and the best path to live before God. So then we come to verse number three and we read these words. It says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible couple key words here. I'll highlight them in blue for you. So, by faith, we understand. We understand. So, the mind is being engaged here in such a way that it's not by our senses per se, but by our perception. Let me give you an illustration of how this works. In Psalm 73, we have the author named Asaph describing his experience of doubt and then of rediscovered faith in the living God as he went into the sanctuary of God. So in the first half of the psalm, or maybe the first two-thirds or three-quarters, he gives us his own struggle in looking and seeing the prosperity of the wicked. He's looking with his eyes at the apparent prosperity of the wicked while God's people are suffering. And so he says, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. In other words, he was looking out uh, outside of himself and it was troubling to him. He pondered. But then it says, but when I went into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. I perceived their destiny. So there's that difference between pondering and it being troubling to us and perceiving and that resulting in renewed faith. So perception doesn't revolve around our senses, but upon spiritual realities that we discover in the sanctuary of God. So Hebrews is all about bringing us into the sanctuary of God, into bringing us into God's presence by the blood of Jesus Christ. So here we have this pivotal point that by faith we understand. We are perceiving spiritual realities. They are still real, but we use the spiritual senses, not the physical senses. Then we have this word universe. By faith we understand that the universe was created. And various translations will translate this differently. Uh, it is translated in some ways the world or the world's uh, or the ages. Basically, it is the created order of things. This involves not only the space that God has created in the physical universe, but it has 
included the purpose for which God created, the fact that he has a purpose he is fulfilling in the successive ages of his creation. So everything God has created, both time-wise and space-wise, was created by the word of God. Now this is not like the written word of God, but this is the spoken word of God. This is the spoken word of God. What's his point here? Okay, so let's think about faith. We're not looking at any characters of faith yet, but we're looking at faith that we already have. So we're getting encouragement at the very beginning. Listen, you're already living by faith in one sense. So the universe, the created order of things, were was framed, it was designed, it was prepared, it was created by the spoken word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Or we could also say that the visible was made from invisible. What's he saying here? Let's think about this. This is tremendously encouraging if we think about it. Whether you believe, and I'm not going to give much time to this because it's not worth our time, even the person who believes in a supposed Big Bang believes what this statement says. You have to believe scientifically that the universe had a beginning. The second law of thermodynamics illustrates that, the fact that everything is tending towards disorder and a state of equilibrium. So the fact is, we have to believe that the universe started. But the reality is, we understand scientifically that matter cannot create more matter, or that, according to the first law of thermodynamics, matter and energy cannot be created nor destroyed. So the universe, even by scientific standards, had to come from nothing. The universe, even by scientific standards, had to come from what was invisible. But, of course, we don't believe that. What we do believe is Genesis chapter 1. And it says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. So there we have this idea that there was darkness at the beginning, so nothing was seen, but God spoke light, and there we just had something that was created by his own word, and it became visible. It became visible. So we believe that in the beginning, the invisible became visible. Does that make sense? Let's let's think about this a little bit more in terms of faith. What did we find in verse number one? We found that faith is the conviction of things that are not seen. So the author is kind of looking at us and he's saying, listen, you already believe and you already live in light of an invisible reality. In the past... We believe that God, out of what is invisible by his word, created things that are visible. So he's basically saying your entire life, the fact that you go to work, the fact that you live on physical ground, is living by faith. We live understanding that this visible reality came from what was invisible. So it's almost as if he's saying, so if we believe that the invisible turned visible in the past, why can we not turn what is invisible in terms of the future 
into a present enjoyment. So if we believe that God's word created everything in the past, why can't we believe the word of God that promises us of a savior who is in heaven and who intercedes for us and who cares for us and who provides for us? If we believe something by faith in the past, and in fact our entire lives are dictated by physical realities, that came originally out of what was invisible, if we believe that in the past, why can't we believe it in the future? After all, it's just a difference in time for our minds, but God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God knows no time. So why can't it be that we believe these future realities? So he's basically showing faith isn't unreasonable. In fact, faith operates everything we know. Faith is the basis for even living in our physical world because the physical world was created by what was invisible. So he's showing that things that are invisible, things that are invisible don't have to be unreal to us. They can be just as real, if not more real than the things that are visible. Think about it this way. What was seen, in other words, this present world, came after things that were invisible. Things that we see right now did not always exist. However, what was invisible did always exist. God himself is invisible. God's word is invisible. God's will is invisible. So the priority actually isn't on what is visible, The priority is on what we cannot see, because that has always been and always will be. So when it comes to this question of faith that lives in light of realities we cannot see, it is not unreasonable at all. In fact, it is more reasonable. Get this, this is important. It is more reasonable to live our lives based on what we know yet cannot see than to live our lives based on what we see and cannot know for sure. We cannot know fully, even our physical realities, but we, you know, live life because we have certain rules and and we have certain ways of perceiving things that seem to work, certain laws of nature. But when it comes to the word of God that gives us promises, that is more sure than this changing world that we cannot be stable in. So it is more reasonable to live by faith than to live by sight. But it takes a spiritual mind to understand these things. So by faith, we understand. That's the key. We're using our minds here. By faith, we understand that the worlds were created by the word of God. That's very, very significant. So just as an aside, before we get to verse number four, dear believer, be encouraged. You are going to be attacked, and reprimanded by this world because you will stand on the ground that your greatest hope and your greatest joy is in what you cannot see and what you cannot feel. And yet, it is real. It is real. You will go to university and you will go to the schools that proclaim naturalism to be the deity of the 21st century that Mother Nature is the beginning and the end, and that the Big Bang and evolution provides the necessary answers for why we exist. And you will have to stand for what you cannot see. 
Yet remember this and be encouraged, and you will prove the reality of this as you live out your Christian life, that living by what we cannot see yet know for sure is far better than living for a world that is seeable, that is visible, yet is ever fading and crumbling. So just remember that and be encouraged that it is reasonable to live by faith. As we come to verse number four, we're introduced to the very first, and notice, remember, he's a Gentile, the very first illustrator of faith, the very first man who came to God by faith. Now, one could argue that Adam came to God by faith, but remember that Adam in scripture is always a prototype of dying humanity. So he is never going to be fitting as a man of faith or as one to commend because the reality is he plunged the human race into death. So we're going to read about our friend Abel. He didn't have a long life, but he had a meaningful life. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended. Here we have that idea of approval again. He was commended as righteous. So, Notice how this correlates with even the book of Romans, the idea of righteousness by faith. That's going to be an important theme. So it says, God was commending him. There we have the idea of commending again. God was commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Let's recall the story of Cain and Abel for a moment. Abel came to God with a member of his flock either a sheep or a similar animal. And he offered to God a blood sacrifice out of his flock, and God accepted his blood sacrifice. Cain came to God based on what he produced out of the fruit of the ground. Now let's get the background here. In the book of Genesis, chapter 3, there are two things that are contrasted. We have an animal that was slain and we have the ground that was cursed. This is the background of Genesis 4 where we see Cain and Abel. The skin of the skin that God provided Adam and Eve, the coats of skin, that obviously came from an animal that had to be slain. And we would just assume that it perhaps was a type of sheep or goat, whatever, doesn't matter. The fact is that blood was shed in order to cover man's sinfulness. And that's what we have illustrated in the coats of skin provided by God by pure grace, not the fig leaves that were sewn together by man's efforts. We have this illustration of God's way of providing gracious forgiveness of sins based on blood sacrifice. So, Abel is called a prophet by the words of the Lord Jesus. You can find that in Luke chapter 11, I believe it is, that Abel is the first prophet that was slain. Zechariah was the last in the canon of scripture. And Abel being a prophet, doubtless received directly from God the instruction from the pattern that was set in Genesis chapter 3 before he was born. The pattern that God receives men who come to him on the basis of blood. 
because where there is the shedding of blood, it represents that a life has been given in the place of the offender. So Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Why? Because Abel was following the pattern that God originally gave, and Abel was responding because he was called a prophet, therefore he received visions from God. He was responding to the revelation that God gave. So we already see this idea that a man who receives revelation from God is acting on faith when he lives and obeys that revelation. So here we have the word of God coming in here. Verse number three told us that the spoken word of God made the world. And here we have this idea that the word of God is what we must respond to and what we must act in light of if we are to live by faith. Because words tell us what we cannot see. And yet, by the words, we enter into it as if we see it. So that's the idea of faith. Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. He was acting on faith, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. Let me encourage believers that are listening. God commends people who worship him on the basis of faith. Not only that, God not only commends you in this life, but God will commend you after you die. Remember that Abel had a very short life, and yet it says, through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. In your life, you will have the approval of God if you live by faith. Where there is the approval of God, there is the assurance and the peace that we are doing his will. That comes only by doing what his word says, by living by faith. But the commendation is real. The approval of God is real. And it is there to be had by every one of us. And yet, we must remember this, and we're going to see this more with Noah, that to have the approval of God may mean, and will mean, that we do not have the approval of men. I'm not even talking about the men of the world. I'm talking about men like Cain. Remember what Cain represents. Cain represents false religion. He came to God, yes, but he came through his own efforts. He offered what he produced of the fruit of the ground. So he represents false religion. And that's what these Jewish believers in the book of Hebrews had to face. They had to face the oppression of Jewish religion that was taunting them, saying that your sacrifice of Christ, your belief in Christ is vain. Ours of true human merit is what really gains acceptance before God. We boast in the law. And so Cain is a picture of people who come based on their own merits. And so we find that when we serve God by faith... When we serve God based on his word, we will suffer persecution, maybe not even from the world as much as from the religious community, people who claim to have a form of godliness. That's very, very telling. Let's think of a couple illustrations here. Let's think of a couple applications. If we live by faith in the New Testament, we will not emphasize physical church ornaments. We will not emphasize or incorporate things like instrumental music, stained glass windows, steeples, and all of these physical things that makes us more churchy. So the idea that we live by faith and that we have invisible realities, that we have things we cannot see as being our primary joy, that will be mocked because we live in a day and age where church should look like church 
and not just a simple gathering of Christians. So we're going to suffer persecution in that way. If we come to God by faith, we're also going to suffer the persecution of even, say, the psychologists and the philosophers in the Christian community. The idea that we accept the word of God without reserve, the idea that we accept it in simplicity, we will be mocked by people who have these higher views, apparently, than we do, these educated views of how we incorporate scripture into philosophy and psychology and religion. But the idea is that faith is a simple thing. Faith receives the word of God and lives it out. And we will be viewed as inferior and as ill-equipped for our simple stand on the word of God, especially in a day of extreme counseling psychology and extreme behavioral psychology that suggests it's not the power of the Holy Spirit in prayer by which we advance in the faith, but it is by methods and programs. So faith will actually have a bigger impact than we think. It will cause us to be outcasts from the community of religion at large. But that's okay, because we have God's commendation, and that's what matters. And that's what produces the greatest legacy. When all is said and done, men who lived by man's standards may have some sort of legacy that men look up to, but Abel was a man who, though he did not live long, he still speaks. He has a legacy. I think of the woman who anointed Mary's feet. He says, wherever this gospel will be proclaimed, her act of worship will be remembered. So it is with us. You live your simple life of faith. And don't you worry about being rejected by men. Because God will see to it that your legacy produces far more than these popular yet false teachers accomplished. And your life will leave a legacy of faithfulness to God. Even though your acts may be simple and not popular, because you may inspire another and another and a future generation to live before God. In verse number five, we're introduced not to Abel, but to Enoch. We read, By faith Enoch was taken up, so that he should not see death, and he was not found, because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So, we have the commendation of God in view here, but we also have the commendation of man involved. Men recognize, this man pleases God. This man is unique. This man walks with God. So, we have seen that faith illustrated in Abel comes to God on God's basis. It comes to God in the simplicity of what God provides. But in Enoch, we see that faith goes a step further. It not only is an outcast from the world, but it walks with God. You remember in Genesis chapter 5, that where we have that litany of people dying, that list of people who, basically it's the graveyard chapter in one sense, it keeps on saying, and he died, and he died, and he died, because it is showing the effects of death and of sin. But then we come to this man. He's just there in a few verses. It says that Enoch walked with God, and God took him. And so here we have, by faith, Enoch was taken up, because his life of faith was illustrated in the fact that he communed with God. His faith, even though he did not see the kingdom of God, that was basically his entire reality. And in fact, I find it interesting here. It says he was not found as if his family went to look for him after he was raptured up, after he was taken by God. 
that implies that when he was walking with God, he was literally walking somewhere else where nobody else was. He was a man who knew God alone. So his faith was so real that nobody else could rise up to his spiritual stature. He was a man who was alone with his God because God was his greatest reality. And so God took him from death to illustrate that faith overcomes things even like death. And that's an illustration of the rapture for believers. The fact that our faith in God, even though we cannot see our Lord Jesus Christ, one day we will see him face to face. One day he will come for us. And that is power over death. And we also see here that people who live by faith are very, very dear to God. He had this testimony that he pleased God. Wherever he walked, God was pleased with him. And God looked at this man, and he just looked with delight, and he saw this man loves me, and this man pursues me. So God took him as an expression of delight. God took him from his surroundings, because, and this is really significant in terms of faith, so involved, so immersed was Enoch in what he could not see, that he was more in heaven than he was on earth, as it were. Even though he was walking on earth, because he was walking with God, it was so real to him that God said, listen, you're closer to heaven than you are of earth. Why don't I just take you to heaven with me where you really belong? Isn't that wonderful? The idea of heaven being so in us and so part of us that we're closer to heaven than we are to earth. That's the reality of faith. And we experience a pursuit of God there, and we experience the nearness of God in our own hearts, because God delights in us when we pursue him by faith. But let's remember, Abel was called a prophet, and what about Enoch? Well, in Genesis chapter 5, it says, when Methuselah was born, Enoch began to walk with God. So when Enoch I believe he was 65, that when Enoch was 65, he had his son Methuselah. Methuselah's name means, when he dies, it shall come. That was the flood. So Enoch received a prophecy to name Methuselah what he named him, so that when Methuselah died, the flood would come. So obviously he received some sort of revelation from God, something uh, that God appeared to him. And when God appeared to him, it changed his life forever. And he realized that even though he had not seen God this whole time, God was real. Kind of like Jacob, where he says, God was in this place and I knew it not. And so Enoch finally saw God penetrate his reality and he realized this is the reality worth living for. Even though I have not seen God for these 65 years, yet was he always with me. And so I will live to walk with him and to pursue him and to see him as it were. And so God, because Enoch was so close to heaven, just took him to be with himself. That's a wonderful testimony to faith. And so we find, very, very simply, that to live a life of faith is to live a life of constant prayer and communion with God. Question, how much do you pray? Not only how much do you pray, but how much do you enjoy praying? Is it easy for you to spend an hour maybe even two hours in the presence of God? Is it easy for you simply to open up scripture, to put everything else aside, and in quietness and alone, you are able just to sit or stand or kneel before your God and acknowledge his reality 
and live before him as your supreme joy in living. We need to be people of prayer, not only of requesting things from God, but of requesting to see his face and of pursuing him in prayer, showing him by our faith, by our prayer, by our walking with him, that he is our greatest delight and our greatest joy. So let's move on to verse number six. This is really the crux of the matter. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, notice the nearness to God expressed here. He that would draw near to God must believe that he exists or that he is and that he rewards those who seek him. So this is another place where we could divide the verse into two. We must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the idea is that the Christian's supreme delight is in knowing God. The Christian's supreme delight is in understanding who God is and to actually claim to be near to God. So what are the two things that we must believe? What are the two realities of our faith that we must understand in order to draw near to God and to please him and to please him? So we have this idea, two realities that we are striving for. We want to please God and we want to draw near to God. I think that's the sum of the Christian life, we could say. We desire to serve and we desire to know. We desire to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. It's a very simple description of the Christian life. We desire to honor God, and we desire to know God. So it says, listen, if you want to please God, and if you want to draw near to God, you must do it by faith alone. Because the one who would draw near to God must believe these two things. Number one, you must believe that he is, or that he exists. Let me stop there for a moment. This is not an apologetic statement. In other words, this is not defending God's existence by various arguments. This is saying that you realize that the existence of God is embedded into your very soul. It is embedded in creation so that it is undeniable. But you will be tempted to deny the existence of God because trials will do that to a person. Yet the one who must draw near to God must believe 100% without doubt so ingrained in his being that he could not doubt it, that God exists. And I think if we look at life this way, it will be an immense help to us. It's not that we are trying to believe in the God that most appeals to us, but faith operates by realizing, no, it's not about what I want to believe. It's about what is true. God is. God timelessly, spacelessly is. He exists permanently, eternally, forever, in every location, in every time, with all power. This is the God that we worship, and we do not have a choice to change the God that we worship. God is, and if we live our lives realizing, I'm not living because I have chosen to believe in my ideal God. I am living because God is God exists and I must respond to him. Faith doesn't create anything in its mind. Faith responds to what it is persuaded to be true. And so we come to God not because we have chosen to draw near to this God, but because he is the living God, because he is the true God. He is who he is. He exists. And we draw near 
because of who he is. Interesting little note here. In the NASB, it says, the one who comes to God must believe that he is. You remember in the Old Testament that Moses heard God speak to him and God revealed his name to him. God said, I am what I am. I am who I am. If you want to define God, you have to define God by God because he is a unique being. And God defines himself by existence. He says, I just am. I am who I am. And he is self-contained. He is self-sufficient. God didn't describe himself by what he does merely or by what qualifies him. He just says, I am God. And that's what defines him. God is God because he is God. That's part of who he is. So then God gives him God gives to Moses his name. He says, tell them that I am has sent you. So when we come to the idea of how we refer to God, we do not refer to him as I am, but what is his name in the Old Testament? He is Yahweh. What does Yahweh mean? Yahweh refers to the God who exists. Yahweh is, instead of saying I am, it is saying he is. It is the same name as I am. It's just said from our point of view that God is. So interesting, interesting. Whoever, let's let's read this in the Hebrew mind. Whoever would draw near to God must believe that Yahweh, that he is Yahweh, that he is the God who exists. It's the same way of saying he is. It's the same way as acknowledging that God claims to be the great I am of scripture. He exists and we acknowledge Yahweh to be the one true living God. But the second thing is very important and is essential as well. We not only believe that God exists, but we believe something about his character. And it says we believe that he rewards those or that he is the dispenser of rewards to those who seek him. Dear believer, don't believe in God simply as a fact. Believe in God as the greatest reality known to man, the ultimate reality known to man. This passage tells us and challenges us to believe just as much in God's goodness as we do in his existence. We must believe that he exists, but also that he rewards. We are just as persuaded in his goodness as we are in his existence. We are just as persuaded that God will reward our efforts to search after him as we are of the fact that he eternally is God. Isn't that tremendous? The assurance that we have in the eternal God is the same assurance that we have in that he is good. That's tremendous. And if we don't believe in the goodness of God, well then we can't approach him because God's goodness must be affirmed because that's intrinsic to who he is. If we don't believe God is good and kind, why would we seek him? Or how would we seek him for that matter? But here we have this great idea that God rewards and that just as he exists, so true is it that he will bless us when we seek after him. All of this revolves around this desire for a personal knowledge of God. We are seeking him. We are drawing near to God. We are like Enoch and we want to walk with God. So it's not enough for us simply that he exists out there, but we want to be blessed by knowing him 
in our hearts. So that's that's what faith does. Faith seeks after God, and it is just as convinced of God's goodness as it is of his existence. And if we don't believe that, we will not get through the suffering of life. But if we do believe it, there is power, and there is revolution, and there is transformation there. That is what gave these characters of faith the power that they had. And so we find that with Noah. So we find that with Noah. And this is where we will close. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. There's this idea of what is unseen recurring. In reverent fear, he constructed an ark for the saving of his household. He acted in the present because of what he had not seen in the future. So again, faith proved the reality of the flood, not because the flood came, but because the ark existed. So it says, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah was justified because he believed in God's promise and he lived in light of God's promise. The same thing we will find with Abraham later, but not today. By faith, Noah, being warned by God, so he had revelation from God. He was warned concerning events as yet unseen, so he had to exercise faith because it was both invisible and future, what we saw in verse number one. And so he acted, he constructed because of his reverent fear for God. He constructed an ark for the saving of his household. He had a concern for his own people. That's what faith does as well. It responds by a care for our own people. By this he condemned the world. So great and so profound was his righteousness that he was in fact like a law to the world. If the world wanted to look to a righteous man, they would see Noah. And when they compared themselves with his righteousness, they were condemned immediately. What a tremendous, tremendous testimony. But he only had that because he believed in God's goodness and in God's existence. He believed his God. That was the realest reality to him. It was the ultimate reality to him. And so even though he didn't see the waters of the flood, the waters of the flood were real to him because he constructed the ark. And eventually, eventually, the flood waters did come and the condemned world perished in those flood waters. But Noah continued on as a man of righteousness, because he lived by faith. Dear believer, the day will come when everything that we enjoy and everything that we desire about God will turn into visible reality. We will see it someday. Not yet, but we will. Let us live as if it is already real to us. Let us do what we must do in this life as if the day has already come when we have seen God in all of his fullness. The world will look at us, and the world will mock us, just as it did Noah. The world will mock us for doing things and investing in what is unseen. Yet, eventually the day will come when God will reveal himself, and this world that rejected everything we hold dear will condemn itself and will perish in the judgment that we have seen coming because of the promises of God. It's a very solemn thing, but let's be encouraged that God is delivering us from judgment. 
We aren't here to simply be outcasts in the world. We are a remnant that God has saved so that we can become heirs of righteousness that comes by faith, so that we can stand before God in confidence and in joy and in intimacy. We, we, aren't, we aren't the outcasts in God's sight. We are the people who have seen the truth. We are the people that have been encouraged to flee from the wrath to come. We have been warned by God. We have had revelation from him in his word. And even though we have not seen his judgment yet, even though we have not seen his glory yet, even though it is future and invisible, yet it is real and present to us in our lives. And so we do what we must to see men saved. We do what we must to invest in eternity. And we do this so that we can have righteousness to stand before God, so that we can truly say, I have sought after God, and I have found him. I have drawn near to God, and he has drawn near to me. And this is all by faith. So, dear believer, please encourage yourself. Please encourage yourself. This world is a world of suffering, and this world will destroy us unless the truest reality in our hearts is what we cannot see unless the truest reality in our hearts is what we have not come to see in terms of its fulfillment. God's promises are true, not because they have happened, but because God said it, and that's enough for us. Is that enough for us? Is it? That's the only way we can live, where our greatest vision in life is not the promises that God gives, but the God who gives the promises. That's the ultimate test of faith. Is God himself, our all-sufficiency? Is God the one we seek after, the one that we desire to please, the one that we desire to walk with? That is what faith will manifest itself in. That is what faith will be real in. That is how we will live a life of faith. And only when what is future and what is unseen becomes the realest thing to us, only then can we truly please God and live triumphantly, even in a world where things do not make sense, even in a world where things are not clear as of yet, yet one day they will be, because of God's promises. So the question is, will we learn from these lessons in the Old Testament, and will we realize that yes, these people acted in light of what seemed foolish at the time, but they acted because they were confident in God, and they were eventually vindicated. Will we rest in a future day when our decisions will be vindicated and our service for God will be validated and when we will be set on display as people who, even though we didn't see it, we knew it, we believed God, and so we were declared to be righteous. That is a life worth living for. Even in the suffering, even in the obscurity, even in these life events that we cannot understand and see, This is what brings us into triumph. And ultimately, we look to our Lord Jesus Christ. It says, Who for the joy that was set before him, something he wasn't enjoying yet, but it was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. But now, he does receive the joy that is his, and he is at the right hand of God. Look to Christ, my dear, dear friend. Look to Christ, and remember that he has walked the path before us. And he has lived that life of faith, proving that even through the pain, even through the suffering, even through the confusion, that reality that God will fulfill his word, 
that is enough to drive us, till the day we die, to have unshakable confidence in our God. May we learn from this text the lessons that we ought, and may we ever seek after God, being absolutely persuaded that apart from what we think or feel, He exists, He is, and He will reward our seeking after Him. Well, that's all for today. If you would like more resources like this, visit us on christianteaching.org. Don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter and check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes as well. Until next time, I'm your host, Micah Hackett. God bless. God bless.